The final episode of this first series of the Hay Festival podcasts features Hilary Mantel talking about The Mirror and the Light, the third book in her Thomas Cromwell trilogy, for which she won the Hay Festival Medal for Prose 2020, which was awarded to her at Hay Festival Digital last week. It is, I think, possibly the single greatest literary achievement of my reading lifetime, and it was a huge pleasure to talk to her. Her speaking style is very much like her writing style. It compels you to listen at her pace and with her close attention and clarity. Dame Hilary, thank you very much for joining us. It's a great pleasure to have you back at Hay in this virtual world. May I first uh, ask you how this third volume of your Thomas Cromwell book relates to the others? Because it seems to me that it's not the last part of a trilogy, more a sort of third act of the story? The third book had to comprehend the first two books, not only because it has to stand on its own in a formal literary sense, but because the arc of this story is very long and I wanted all the characters who'd been mentioned at the beginning to complete their arc and for their story to come to rest, even if it's only with what is a very obvious dot, dot, dot to be continued because a particular person's story goes on beyond the time frame. My story finishes with Cromwell's consciousness, so it ebbs away on the days on the scaffold in July 1540. But the reader is conscious that there are larger stories continuing. What I think the writer likes to do is to give a hint as to how they might go. So the reader has enough information, as it were, to fill in the missing pieces. Now, also, I have to put myself in the reader's position and say, maybe my reader has read the first two books. But how recently have they read them? And I can't expect everyone's mind to be swarming with the facts of Tudor history as mine was. There has to be a certain amount of recapitulation. But I tried to make it just that. I tried always to add value. If I go back over past events in the third book, then there's a twist or something is added to the story that changes it. So you learn a little bit more. And you also learn as a reader that memory is beginning to play tricks. I'm fascinated by the way this happens to all of us, that every time we remember the story is slightly different. That's beginning to happen to Thomas Cromwell too. And also in a way, he's struggling to read his own story by the time we come to the third book. And he is unable to fight down parts of his past that he would like to repress. Certain ghosts are coming out of the woodwork, if you like. They're coming out from behind the panelling. 
and they're asking him to give an account of himself. So it's a, a huge task to pull together the subject matter, the themes, also the images and metaphors. I wanted those to flow through this three books as well. And until I finished The Mirror and the Light, it didn't really feel as if either of the first two books were finished. Oh, that's really interesting. Because as well as The Mirror and the Light being um, Cromwell's reference to the king, although you put it, take it from a to Thomas Wyatt and give it in direct uh, praise of the king. Um, the book, also, book three, also reflects back, doesn't it, to the other two? Because we see Cromwell, whom we've come to understand and know a little in books one and two, as the arch manipulator, in a beautiful Aristotelian sense. It, those very mechanics of um, downfall are brought, his own, his own mechanics are brought in against himself, aren't they? Yes, he's condemned by the processes by which he himself has condemned others. Uh, he's not brought to trial. There's just an act of attainder which takes everything away from him, including the possibility of defence. So the only thing you can say about that is he doesn't complain. <laughs> no, although he has a, in you know, Aaron Sorkin's memorable phrase, a constituency of one. He's brought down, isn't he, both by um, a moment of care, or several moments of carelessness with language, and also by the, the one agenda that he has that is entirely his own, which is this um, wonderful engagement with the Bible in English. Yes, with the Bible in English and his increasingly evangelical thinking, I believe myself that he was moving in a more Protestant direction. When the German ambassadors asked him, oh, come on, Cromwell, come out and tell us plainly what you think, because you're on our side, aren't you? He indicated Henry and said, I believe what he believes, which was the only safe line to take. But you imagine there's a wink and a nod in there. And this is where he's running into danger. He always had been in danger from the beginning of his career because of his evangelical contacts, particularly in the city of London. But He's sailing even closer to the wind now because although Henry has broken away from Rome, Henry has not changed what he believes in, his, in essence. He is still a Catholic and Cromwell's becoming something else. And it's easy for Cromwell's opponents, therefore, to accuse him of heresy. And this is one of the danger points for him. 
But it also, of course, his, his activities as evangelical led, as you say, to the English Bible. He was one of the preeminent crusaders. He paid the printer himself. He organized for the Bible to be put into every parish church. And it's a turning point in a nation's history when it begins to talk to God in the vernacular. One of the most extraordinary things um, about this fictional version of this man is that we have been given um, an opportunity to understand and empathize with him. Uh, there's a wonderful line that Flaubert uh, writes about biography. He says, you should write the biography of a friend as if you were taking revenge for him. And there's a marvelous sense that you are standing up for Cromwell and giving him uh, our light. But you also, I think, manage to give even Stephen Garner and Thomas More and some of the people who um, come at the religious question from a completely the opposite side, a really fair hearing. I'd glad to hear you say that because I had a lot of criticism for the way that More is portrayed in the book. And I feel as if I'm having to explain to people the ABC of fiction writing. The book is written from Thomas Cromwell's point of view. So what we're getting is not Hillary's perspective on Thomas More, but the way I think he would have viewed Thomas More and the way he would have viewed Stephen Gardner. And I think that my picture, particularly of Moore, is a lot more nuanced than people have, than some people have given it credit for, because it's not an unsympathetic portrait. And also, I think if people were to read Moore's letters from the Tower, they would understand the part that Cromwell played in his downfall and they would see that it's not as simple as they think. It was in Cromwell's interest for Moore to stay alive. He didn't, well, none of his detractors, not even his worst enemies, ever accused Cromwell of being a cruel or a revengeful man. They accused him of efficiency, ruthlessness maybe. But the picture of him hounding Thomas More to death, which is so dear to the Roman Catholic imagination, simply doesn't hold water if you look at More's own letters. So I have tried to give him worthy opponents. This is so important. And I have tried to make the king himself a nuanced personality. I have a great deal of, perhaps sympathy will be stretching it, but I think a lot about Henry. He does tend to possess your imagination um, when you work with him, so to speak. 
and I've tried to put myself in Cromwell's shoes and also to ask myself, what kind of a man must Cromwell have been to walk into that lion's den every day? That was one of the fundamental questions I asked at the start of the trilogy. And why would you do it? It's really interesting, isn't it? Because we are in the Western world kind of becoming used to capricious egomaniacs with great charisma. And you give Henry the charisma that does shine brightly and burn brightly. I'm fascinated by the way in which you introduce uh, the great portrait painter of the age, Hans Holbein. And I'm, I'm interested in how you see the difference between that painter's portraiture and your own portraiture of, of your subjects. Holbein's your reliable man for the exterior. <laughs> and I wonder if one of the reasons for his popularity was and is, he represents that exterior so faithfully, so glamorously. You don't feel he's putting his sticky fingers on your soul when he paints you. I'm putting myself in the in the position of a Tudor now. He is faithful in representing a persona. And this was the great gift he gave to Henry, these wonderful pictures of himself, a colossus. Um, they're not in any sense flattering, and yet they are magnificent. And you feel that Henry must have been well pleased with them because after all, the Tudor grandee didn't want to look handsome. He wanted to look powerful. And above all, that was what Henry did. But it's exterior. Um, you, you don't... Hmm, now, how can I put this? You wouldn't be telling Holbein your dreams while he was painting you. You'd just be turning your face and reorientating yourself to the light, doing exactly as you were told. You'd feel safe, and I suppose one of the things a portrait painter has to do is make the subject feel safe. There's a really interesting word you used, magnificence, about, about those portraits. And I'm, I'm just intrigued as to whether or not, when you were finding a form for telling this story, when you, were, when you were coining this language, which is both incredibly contemporary and somehow gives us a, a, an invented taste of Tudor coinage, whether you are also consciously playing with the idea of magnificence that's appropriate to the subject matter. Yes, the, the epigraph to the first book is from John Skelton's play, 
magnificence. He's a writer from the earlier part of Henry's reign. And right at the end of, of the trilogy, the play Magnificence is actually performed. And it's performed, so to speak, against Cromwell by his enemies. And he is shown as the powerful man, disgraced and brought low. And there's a redemptive ending, but they cut it off before that happens. So the concept of magnificence, perhaps rather alien to the modern mind, is is very much a part of the the distancing I try to achieve in the book. They're not like us. I'm not claiming that they are. In many ways, they are very alien. And yet, it manages to be a universal story. One of the wonders of the dramatic irony here is that we know how this will end and the characters don't. We know with delight that that wailing ginger brat will become Gloriana. We know before Cromwell does that he will be executed. But could you just run through again for us the the relationship you have with what might be deemed factual history? Because some of the factual history that's received and accepted, it's just incorrect, isn't it? I think it is true that Thomas Cromwell until recently was very ill-served by biographers and they were passing on fairly uncritically unexamined information from one generation to the next and passing on a bundle of prejudice with it as well. One of the good things that's happened since I began to publish trilogy has been an upswing in Cromwell scholarship and Dermot McCullough's marvellous biography of Cromwell, where he's gone back, examined the sources and cleared out a lot of junk from the record. So we can see Cromwell more clearly now. I have been concerned with the record in a different way. I've been examining, as it were, the stories and the legends. And as an example, I could take the story of Henry VIII's meeting with Anne of Cleves, his fourth wife, a meeting which went pretty disastrously because it seemed as if Henry took against this young woman at first glance. He came into the room and it appears she failed to recognise him as the magnificent and glorious King of England. In fact, so unbothered was she that she just went on looking out of the window. Now, I've looked at this again and I've thought it through. I've paced it out, if you would, putting myself in the room with them. And I said, here is um, 
a 24-year-old woman who's come halfway across Europe in the winter weather to meet a bridegroom, what does she know about him? He's seen her portrait, but what has she seen? What stories have they told her? I'm staging the meeting, pacing through the meeting in my mind. I have seen a look of horror on the face of Anne of Cleves when she realises that this, this elderly-looking, overweight man is the God that she had been expecting. And I've seen that expression last for 10 seconds, but it's the 10 seconds that undoes everything because Henry's seen it too. And there's no recovering. He's seen himself in the mirror of her eyes and he can't unsee it. He's read himself there. And that's the origin of the disaster. Now, I've asked myself, so why is the legend so persistent that Anna was some kind of disgusting person? Because actually, if you look at the record, Henry was the only person to find fault with her. And what comes over so clearly from the record is that those English gentlemen who met her in Calais were delighted with her. They knew there were problems because she hardly spoke any English, but she was learning fast. They thought she was very pleasant and they found no fault with her appearance. But somehow, all these years, we've believed Henry's account. Now, I asked myself, we don't believe what he said about Catherine of Aragon or Anne of Cleves. So why do we believe him uncritically when it comes to his fourth wife? And I think the process of novelization and using the fictional imagination properly is just simply the process of asking these questions that are very obvious ones, but nobody has bothered with over the years. Not did... What did Henry see when he looked at Anne? But let's just flip it. What did Anne see when she looked at Henry? In a nutshell, that's it. It's inquiring about... It's undermining what has seemed totally obvious to everyone, maybe for centuries. And it isn't particularly a feminist point of view. It's just a question of going up to the record with a certain amount of curiosity. Probably easier for someone who isn't a historian and isn't caught up in a tradition and who is free to question everything. It's a wonderful way of finding an imaginative truth that makes absolute sense of a story that has, that has taken a, a, an orthodox twist in another direction, isn't it? And, and you do that again with 
the speed and completeness of Cromwell's fall, about which there is very little documentary evidence, but you give it absolute sense through this uh, wicked um, combination of class resentment and and religious uh, bitterness and the sheer nastiness of high political intrigue. There's no one explanation that covers his fall. It's it's very much like the fall of Anne Boleyn. You you try to set out all the factors and you think this time I'll understand it. But when you get to the end of that process, once again, there's still something that's eluding you. And I think what's eluding you is always something to do with personal relationships because we have no record of what happens when two people are alone in a room without even the clerk to write the proceedings down. And the nature of Henry's rule is so personal that it really matters at that level how people operate. And this is unseen, it's unrecorded, it's unknown. That means it's available to the imagination. And it's something that I can legitimately do to situate at least part of the cause in this uninspected aspect of life. It's the borderline, you see, between public life and private life. What's on the record and what can never be on the record you have made two extraordinary interventions in, in the factual story, um, which I'd love to ask you about. One is um, the invention of a character called Yenika, who is uh, part of a, an unknown Flemish past. And I'm um, fascinated by all the opportunities that gives us, A, to be aware of history that falls outside the mainstream of the story, but also about how it refashions our, in, our intention and our, our focus on his relationship with women and the confusion he has between uh, what might be a daughter and what might be a wife. Yannicka... Cromwell's fictionalised daughter is, is my boldest invention. Um, the reason I invented her was that we do believe, it, it does seem, that Cromwell may have had an illegitimate... Cromwell may have had an illegitimate daughter called Jane. And... Although one can't be sure about this, Dermot McCullough thinks that she was probably born not long after the death of his wife. So she's still quite a little girl um, at his death. She's, there's a child growing up in the Cromwell household. She's appears in Gregory Cromwell's household. And I think I've found her in Rose Sadler's household as well. 
But she's a marginal and somewhat mysterious figure. Supposing she is Cromwell's daughter, we have no idea who her mother was. And I'm sure you can readily see what a problem that presents for a novelist. Are you just going to reach out and make up something wild? Because then that person, the mother whom I'd invented, would have to have a backstory and an ongoing story. And I'd be in territory that made me really uncomfortable as an inventor. In other words, I'd be writing the kind of fiction I don't write. So something in me also rebelled at the idea of just leaving Jane out. I wanted somehow to come to grips with this idea of an extra daughter to replace the daughters who had died. And so I suppose what I did was to reach into the mythological level of the book to abstract, if you like, the notion of daughter away from any particular person. Uh, the mother of Yenneke in my fiction is a woman called Anselma, whom Cromwell lived with. And again, she's a, a fictional character when he was a young man in Antwerp. But why I say she comes up to the level of mythology is that running through the three books is a picture, an image um, from a tapestry of Solomon meeting Sheba. And in this tapestry, the face of Sheba is very familiar to Cromwell. It's the face of Anselma. And he keeps looking at it and looking at it till one day the king says, I think this lady should go home with you. And he makes him a present of the tapestry. And this story is woven to make an apt comparison right through from the beginning of Wolf Hall so that when Yenneke arrives, she looks up and there is her mother's face on the wall behind her. And I suppose, I don't know if it comes off, but the effect I'm trying for is something like those myths where a statue comes to life or as in the winter's tale, a person long thought dead begins to speak. It absolutely I'm not does sure speak. it's a solution, but it was my way of acknowledging something that might have been quite important in his life, but about which we can, we can feel it, but we can't, as it were, pin it down factually. It's where the record completely fails me. It's interesting as well because it sets her alongside his relationships with Mary, with Meg, with Bess Darrell, um, and the difficulty he has in realising 
complete uh, human relationships with any of these people that they also understand. And it gives rise to the way in which people misinterpret his intentions towards these younger women. Because actually, he's, he's quite a, a model, uh, enlightened, you would almost say feminist um, patriarch, isn't he? Or tries to be. Well, one of the jobs that he had was um, he inherited from Wolsey is dealing with the affairs of the great families. Um, from the letters that he exchanges with various matriarchs and powerful women, you realise he did not and he could not have underestimated the role of women in that society. What strikes you is how savvy these women are, how powerful, how much law they know, how much they stand on their rights. They are, of course, a particularly aristocratic caste of women. But they are power brokers not in quite the same way as the men. But on another level, if you think about it, at Henry's court, most of the real power reposes with women because only a woman can give the king what he needs, which is an heir. And the great question of all those decades is which woman will do it? So. A minister's first concern, if he works with Henry, is what do I know about the women? How can I keep them on side? And at court, they talked about the king's side and the queen's side. They were two model households. Um, they, they were two households that acted as a mirror to each other for every officer the king had, the queen had one too. And what I show is what I believe to be true, that Cromwell realises the importance of the queen's side. And he is careful to cultivate women as a source of information, as well as on a human level, as friends. We know from references in letters about him as well as by him that he did have some interesting friendships with women and I think he was you know we have to remember this is not the deep middle ages this is an era when educating women and how women should be educated and what freedoms they should have are among the great questions of the day. So it's something of a turning point. I think also the question one asks is why Cromwell didn't remarry. And I was unable to answer this question for for my reader. So I thought, well, let's get together and ask the question again and again and again then. Um, because Cromwell was widowed when he still had a young family 
The usual thing would have been to marry again pretty quickly. He didn't do that. And one of the things that undoes him at the end of his life is the devastating rumour that he wants to marry the king's daughter, Mary, as a means of making himself king and establishing a Cromwell dynasty. So once my reader becomes aware of this rumour, I hope they're joining Cromwell's friends in the book and saying, get married, get married quickly, marry the next woman you see, at least propose to her. And the various marriage plots that run through the book are are quite funny, really. They're, um, I was going to say, they're also disappointed with, with Henry's, Henry's marriages. Yes. Um, they're, they're sort of increasingly desperate efforts to, to get him married. But he, this is one thing that he cannot pay attention to. And so he's exposed to this rumour. I, I was going to say, his, his failure to pick up on these marriage opportunities is gloriously, wittily counterpointed to Henry's desperate desire to get married as often as possible. It's another way in which the mirror, the mirroring works in, in the book. But the, the other piece of glorious invention I wanted to ask you about actually is the most excruciating moment of, of potential marriage for Cromwell, which is when he presents himself disastrously to Dorothea, uh, Wolsey's daughter. And uh, this comes at a moment when we have been accustomed to observing and sympathising with Cromwell, the superhero, who is smarter and more manipulative and, and more ruthless than anybody else. But he's undone by the realisation that his, his one true loyalty um, has been potentially completely misunderstood. And whilst the plot with whether or not he will marry Wolsey's daughter is, is yes about marriage, it's also about his complete failure of, of being recognised. He comprehensively fails throughout that scene to know what's going on. And it's the first time we've really seen him at that kind of disadvantage. He, he goes to see... Dorothea in her convent. We don't know that such a meeting took place, but we do know that her affairs constantly came across his desk because the question was what to do with Dorothea if her convent was disbanded. So he goes to see her and to his astonishment and horror, he finds he's asked her to marry him. He's thinking of marriage just instrumentally. It's, you know, what what do you do with women if, if they're not nuns? Well, they must be wives. And he's got used to thinking of marriage, as it were, um, as a problem, but also a solution. He's not thinking of anyone's 
emotions. He's just thinking, how do we make this situation logical and tidy? And of course, she is horrified. And then we find out that she thinks that he betrayed her father and that she has been under this misapprehension for years and he leaves her and he goes out and he is completely broken because if you like if he had to ask himself am i in any sense a good man he could say yes i am a good man because I was loyal to my old master. The one thing he's been sure of is that he acted properly and morally when Wolsey was destroyed by putting himself in peril to try to save Wolsey. He's sure of that. And then all his certainties come crumbling down and it's his lowest point until near the end of the novel. We see him fall just before he sees himself fall, but we also mistrust by now. We, we know him well enough to know his, his machinations and his facilities with bending truths. And there's a moment there, just after that meeting with Dorothea, where we are more and more aware of him as an unreliable narrator of his own story. Yes. He doesn't have a godlike comprehension of what's going on. And he becomes more and more uneasily aware of this, of the whispers in the shadow, the disturbance in the next room those aspects of life he cannot control and he cannot monitor. He sticks very closely to Henry's side. That was why he retained for so long the role of the king's secretary, because it would mean he would always be with Henry. But then that becomes impossible because he's also wanted to be in six other places. And in the end, such is the press of business, such is the nature of, of accumulating difficulty. Crisis happens not on a weekly basis, but a daily basis. And the accumulation of factors becomes too much for him. The, the, the Cleves marriage wasn't the cause of his downfall because it was after the Cleves marriage that Henry made him Earl of Essex, which in many ways was completely baffling. He only had a few weeks to enjoy his new dignity before his opponents pulled him down. It may have been that act of Henry's that actually spurred his opponents on. So in promoting him, Henry was also ruining him because they may have thought, men like the Duke of Norfolk, this is the last straw. Now he's an earl. What will he be tomorrow? 
and it, it's worth it's as worth. I say there is no one there is no one cause there's just a horrible agglomeration of adverse events it's worth remembering that the sheer improbability of this degree of social mobility is you know it, it's it's clear today but it's also absolutely confounding in a Tudor context where not only did the nobles not want upstarts to come out of the dirt but the poorer people the lower sections of Tudor society would have been equally alarmed by somebody rising out of their place yes that that's a very powerful factor in how he's viewed by the country he was a deeply unpopular figure not because of any attribute of his or characteristic of his but just because of what he was as a type which is the man who has sinned through ambition and has risen out of his class because to do that that to do that is to disrupt God's design what he made you you should stay now Cromwell not only in his own person but in the things he said is looking to a different kind of world where you can actually do better than your mother and father uh, you can you can progress up the social scale you can be more secure you can be more educated you can have a better life now again we're on an interesting cusp where some people will embrace this some people will think that's a really sinful way of looking at God's dispositions so in the country at large he was regarded as unnatural and upstart possibly in league with the powers of darkness can i can i ask you one last question um from me before putting to you a couple of questions from from members of our audience and my my question is really related to to form you are very clear in showing us what Cromwell says and what he does and and the gap between those two things where we're invited to use our imaginative power as readers but there are also these um, strong metaphors of the ghosts and the wild cat that's caged towards the end of his life and the dagger which he carries with him and we know as readers that when he gives it up that is a, a disastrous disarmament. Yes. I'm, I'm fascinated by the way in which the novel form, which wasn't invented at this period, is also informed in your using of it by what we might recognise as Tudor theatrical drama and the way in which you use scenes and, and set pieces that move quite fluidly um, and yet whilst in a theatre you can see everybody's point of view we're always joining this story from from behind Cromwell's shoulder or even behind his eyes yes 
I think there is a slight change with the the third book from the what he says and what he does because the third book is more ruminative, more digressive. With the first two books, we're behind his eyes. Sometimes with the third book, we're sunk into his soul. So it becomes, in a way, less of a theatrical experience in that I cannot show you everything. So I allow the narrative to operate on the level of symbol and myth. And I think what is happening to Cromwell is that, as I said, he is no longer able to repress those aspects of himself and of his past that he has kept so firmly below ground in the first two books. Wherever they break through in the first two books, they are dangerous. But here, what you feel, I think, is the eruption of the irrational through the surface of everyday life. And I suppose I'm saying to the reader, don't be fooled into thinking that history operates by the light of reason or that you can connect cause and effect in the pleasing way that some historians connect it. Wherever there is a human element, there is mystery and there is disruption and there is a series of breaks in the story. This is why I suppose I think the historical novel is a powerful form because it's in those breaks, those islands, that imagination operates to kind of patch the story together, make it comprehensible on a human level, even though historians might not be able to assent to it. We have such a powerful drive to make sense, to make sense of the past, to make a version that lies beside the record and explains things on a, on a more human level. I have the greatest respect for the historical record and I cannot move without it. But I also have respect for image, myth, symbol, for the unconscious workings of the human mind. And I'm trying to keep them moving together through the trilogy in a kind of dance. That's perfect. Thank you very much. May I just put to you now three questions from our audience? Um, yes, sure. The first one is from Ian Wishart, who says, throughout the trilogy, who was your least favourite character and why? Well, do you know, I have no least favourite characters because 
the more horrible they are, like Stephen Gardner or the jester Sexton, the more I revel in writing about them because they are a source of power and you constantly want to get them onto the page. So it's not quite the judgment that you make as an ordinary person or even the judgment that you make as a historian uh, where you might say, I don't like such a person, so I won't bother with them. It's quite the opposite. The more you don't like them, the more they're going to do a great job for you. So you bring them in at every opportunity you can. Uh, I find myself wanting to shake Call Me in book three. I'd like to until then, but he just breaks my heart. Yes, you want to shake Cromwell as well, don't you? Um, you do. You want him to say, wake up, you know, um, take a good look at what's going on here. And it, it's interesting because you, you might ask yourself, you know, why Mr. Master Risley, why Richard Rich? It's easy with the eyes of posterity to see they're no good. Not quite so easy to see it at the time. Um, what I, it, what's difficult for me to get over to the reader in a way is that these are really clever men. Um, they might not be as clever on the human level as Cromwell is, but they are what used to be known as first-class minds. They are very <laughs> valuable people. You, um, you can't, if you're a rational governor or administrator, just say, well, he's talented, but I don't like him. And of course, Cromwell always believed that people could be won over. And it must have seemed incomprehensible to him that in the end, Risley's loyalties were to Stephen Gardner. Or Risley would be so foolish as to lay himself open to blackmail, which is in effect what happened, that he was certainly pressured over to Gardner's side. They are... Um, Characters who are constantly equivocal and ambiguous, and there's great pleasure in writing that as well. I've got a not unrelated question here from Angela Davis, who asks, um, given that plague comes up again and again throughout book three, what do you think Cromwell would have made of today's COVID-19 crisis? Well, they were very good at quarantine in those days. They took it very seriously. I think he'd probably have locked us down for a bit longer. You see, we tend to think that their medicine and their comprehension of science was all rubbish, but actually they did know a lot. They, they didn't understand what you can see through a microscope. So they didn't know about the virus, bacteria. They didn't know the causes of diseases, but they knew how disease worked. And they knew that infection spread among the poor, that 
that one should be clean and one should one should avoid dirt at all costs. They knew that cities were a locus of infection and they knew um to ban crowds. So no public ceremonies when the plague was suspected. The king himself was extremely conscious of of risk and if there was anything that looked like a feverish illness in your household even if you didn't think it was plague you and everyone in that household was banned from going to court which in certain seasons made the operation of politics very difficult it was rather like having to suspend parliament people had to stay away because they might have been near a source of infection so in many ways the the what the tudors did in in these times was was very like what we have been enjoined to do they just had different names for things and there were there were two perils really the plague which was a very frequent visitation and then earlier in the reign this disease called the sweating sickness which probably carried off Cromwell's wife and daughters and then the sweating sickness died out and it came back in the 1550s and carried off Gregory Cromwell his son it it's interesting at the moment because it's hard to see any upside to this but maybe it expands our imaginations a little because many of us live, have lived such safe lives that we cease to understand how the natural world can undo us that's not true of course if you live in an area where you're exposed to flooding or the results of meteorological disasters and it's not true for anyone who lives outside a little civilized oasis in western europe or the united states but many of us have lived safe lives and their lives in the past were so unstable and short and perilous compared to ours so i think the present crisis gives us a little bit of fellow feeling with those sufferers and the last question here is from salma khan who asks um the food in this book is absolutely extraordinary have you yourself tasted all cromwell's glorious menus Oh, I'm afraid I'm I'm just a paper cook, you know. Um I I I read all these recipes and um I I think them through as it were. I don't cook them. Um what what amuses you actually... me is it, what amuses me is the lengths they had to go to to feed themselves during lent and other times of fasting and abstinence because the reformation didn't necessarily sweep all that away they were still doing without um meat and cheese and eggs for a large part of the year 
Um, and I take particular pleasure in finding out the recipes they used to make stodgy carbohydrate taste of something. Uh, one last question from, from me, and I guess this is about the scale of this project, which, you know, in book form runs to nigh on 2000 pages and has taken you, you know, much more than a decade. Yes. Are you are you done with Cromwell now or does he stay with you every day and grow in, in the theatre adaptations and the other things you're doing? But does he still occupy your your mind? Absolutely. And I don't think you lose any of your characters as an author. I think they go back behind their little doors, but if you knock on those doors, they're always there waiting for you. But with Cromwell, yes, I've lived with him for 15 years, and I find that People ask me, you know, how does it feel now the tribute is ended? And for me, in no sense, has it ended? I feel all the time I'm talking about it to readers. And as it's going into different forms, that it's taking on new and stronger life. And I am now engaged in working on the stage play just before we began this conversation I was working on it and I'll go back to it where Cromwell has a whole new set of words because the book won't always do the job for you you have to you have to reframe the story for the stage and that's what I'm doing and I'm working on it with Ben Miles who played Thomas Cromwell in the stage version of the earlier books and he has also read the audio books so he lives with this character as closely as i do so we thought we will combine our forces um and 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 see if we could get these people to walk and talk again so that's my present project one day there will be theater again well, <laughs> one day there will. Um, Hilary, thank you very much indeed for, for your thank time you and very much, Peter. And for sharing this with us. Thank you for listening to this Hay Festival podcast, which was sponsored by Bailey Gifford Investment Managers. There are thousands more recordings in audio and also in video on the Hay Player. Happy summer reading, everybody. Thank you for being with us.